did. And six weeks after the, my son was born, I went out and I had this terrible hangover filled with guilt and shame. But at that point, I never, ever thought, well, maybe I should stop drinking. It wasn't at all something I wanted to do. And so for four years, I continued to drink. And that's where I got really stuck and really overlooked. Welcome to the 1000 Day Sober Podcast. My name is Lee Davey. I am not an alcoholic. I refuse to be anonymous. I am someone that doesn't drink alcohol. And I spend every single moment of my life helping other people do the same like right now. Today, we have a guest um, all the way from the Sunshine Coast in Australia. Her name is Victoria Vanstone, and she is the mother of three children. She has a very scruffy dog, apparently, and a very patient husband. She is originally from the UK, and she's been writing about motherhood and her journey through sobriety for about two years now. Um, Victoria started writing on the exact day she actually quit drinking alcohol. And she found that her writing became her outlet and her distraction from peering in the fridge at those cold bottles of wine. She's found letting out all of her fuckuppery on her blog and in her upcoming book has really helped solidify her sobriety um, and led her to understand herself and her destructive habits in a more wholesome and uh, intricate way. You can learn more about Victoria and check out her writing at drunkmummysobermummy.com. Okay, drunkmummysobermummy.com. She's also the co-host of the Sober Awkward podcast with a good friend, Hamish, and she tells me that they have a lot of fun over there, so check that out, the Sober Awkward podcast. And she's also the co-founder of the Cuppa Community, which is a sobriety social network, and it's free to join. So if you are looking for somewhere to call your home, then go to drunkmummysobermummy.com and click on the link that says Cuppa Community, and you can join for free and get talking to like-minded people about this incredibly important issue. Uh, why did I get Victoria on the call here? Well, for me, uh, I actually found her on Instagram. Liza, my wife, sent me a few posts that she'd done, and I reached out to her um, because, you know, sobriety alcohol has its unique um, problems and issues uh, on all of us, right? Very differently. Um, but there are also some legacies here, right? There are legacy burdens that alcohol causes. And one of them is for a mom, you know, you're pottering around quite nicely one day, uh, drinking alcohol and getting smashed and puking in a bucket. And then all of a sudden, someone tells you you have a human being growing in your body. And you have a decision to make in those nine months about whether or not you're going to stop drinking completely where you're going to drink a little bit what are you going to do that in itself is a massive issue um and then having the baby and what that does to your body what that does to your mind what that does to your soul what that does to your relationship so that's what we're going to talk about today we're gonna to, i'm going to be asking victoria what was it like um to uh go into that pregnancy really struggling with your alcohol what was it like when you stopped drinking and and that's what we're going to talk about, really. And, and it, it brings up some really, really interesting points. If you're a man listening to this thinking, well, I'm not having a baby, so I don't have to listen to this. No, please listen to it. Um, especially if you're a father or you plan on becoming a father in the future. You just want to know a little bit more about what goes on for a woman when they're having a child. And it's much more than that anyway. The conversation that we have branches into so many different areas of sobriety. You'll find this really, really valuable. Victoria is uh is an amazing human being so if you did love this episode please rate and review it at the 1000 day sober podcast 
And if you want to reach out to myself or Victoria, then just email me at thestrivemethod at gmail.com and I'll respond to every single one of them. So without further ado, I'll shut the hell up and leave you in the capable hands of Victoria Vanstone. So Victoria, we're here. We're on the other side of the world. We're trying to get this done a little bit earlier. And it's interesting, actually, because like my my biggest problem at doing podcasts early is, is uh, my daughter. <laughs> you know, it's like being a parent, which is what we're going to kind of talk about today, you know. And um, so thank you very much. Just want to start by saying thank you for staying up really late. So you went to watch Ed Sheeran yesterday. Tell me about it. Yeah, it was amazing. I had a night away with my son, George, who's 11. It was his birthday present. We had a night away in Brisbane, which is kind of the nearest city to where we live. Yeah, it was a great night out. It's always good going to concert sober. It's always a good challenge. Obviously, when you're with an 11-year-old kid, I don't want to drink, but it's always interesting to see all the boozing going on around me. And actually, I discovered that in Australia, they don't they only serve half-strength alcohol at all of the stadiums, mm. which was quite a good insight. So actually, people I found people were going up twice as quickly rather than drinking less. <laughs> yeah, I, fi- I find... Uh, what, did, what did I watch last? I went to watch Primal Scream in Cardiff oh, yeah, Castle. Classic. Um, they were actually doing the Scream of Delica album. And um, my experience of that was I found the drunk people really annoying. Mm. No, it wasn't. It was actually, I just needed to get out of my own way, I guess. Because, all right, occasionally I was getting bumped into. There was that, but that wasn't a big deal. I was just, I was just angry at the waste. So, like, there was a group of people in front of me and they they were they weren't alone. There was a lot of them. And they weren't mm. they weren't even looking at the band or dancing or anything. They were just locked in drunken conversation about nonsense yeah. while the gig was going on. And I just I get annoyed at, at that kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I look back and I think, gosh, some of my drinking was so selfish. I, in my own podcast, we recently did an episode about accident and emergency and about how only now have I realized that actually a lot of the stuff I did, I was never really thinking about anybody else, which is yeah. kind of a similar thing. I'm surprised that Bobby Gillespie is still alive, actually, because I used to see him <laughs> drunk around Brighton quite a lot. He did? <laughs> uh, he was a real he's, he's probably sober now, isn't he? Do you know, it was, um, I don't know if he's sober or not, but I, I, I was reflecting on this afterwards, you know, like, um, when people get sober, they, 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 some people find it really challenging to, um, socialize, right? Like, and, and I was watching Bobby Gillespie as, you know, he's in Cardiff Castle and as the night wore on, it was obvious that Gillespie was getting better, right? Like when it first started, <clears throat> he's just warming up. He's not got a real great connection with the crowd. And, you know, he's, and, and the whole band's the same, the music. And then by the end of the night, they're absolutely rocking it. And I, and I thought to myself, if we just took the alcohol away from every single person watching this incredible, because Scream of Delica was an amazing album. What an opportunity to be able to listen to them play the whole album. If we took the alcohol away, how would people be? Of course, right? They would be a little bit uncomfortable. But once once a couple of hours are set in with the music, nobody would care. It's it honestly no. it, it's such an illusion that it is needed in order for people to have a great time. Like it really is. I know it's. Well, what, I think one of my greatest epiphanies, which I'm sure we'll get into at some point in this podcast, is like understanding that you don't have to drink. Like it yeah. sounds really simple, but in those situations, 
you learn that, gosh, I drank all the time because I thought I had to, because I thought everybody's doing it. So therefore I have to at a concert or a gig or a festival or whatever. You think that you have to. And, and of course, we know now that you don't. Yeah, yeah you don't. You don't. Um, the, other, the other thing I wanted to comment on about the uh, the drinking at gigs um, and take taking your kid to a gig, a first gig or whatever, is a beautiful thing, you know. Um, but I remember taking Zia to watch Disney on Ice in Anaheim in um, in America, and I couldn't believe how many mums were uh, drinking. Like, yeah, because it because it was ostensibly the mums who were there more than the, more than the dads. They were they were, they they were there getting the champagne and all that kind of stuff, and it was yeah. like I think it was like ten, eleven, or so. it was something stupid. It was really early in the day, watching um, Moana skating around the rink, and we're having a few sherbets. Yeah. You know, it just normalizes it, doesn't it? Yeah, and also it's a shame to be distracted. Like I was totally there. You know, we don't get on all the time perfectly. It's not you know one hundred percent amazing, but at least I'm present and there and, and in the moment and not preoccupied with going to the bloody bar every five minutes. It's a, it's a yeah. different, it is a different experience for sure. Yeah. That, 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 that worry, um, what, what, how, how am I going to get my, my drink? Mm. You know, yeah. e- everything about it is, it's just bonkers. Anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I really wanted to get you on to talk about, um, you know, what it means to go through the whole, sobriety um journey if you like as a mom like I was really really interested about that and originally when I was thinking about this I was like you know I really wanted to know what Victoria's life was um like before having a baby um but I want to do it reverse actually because I think the juice for the audience is actually in what the heck happens when we have a baby and how do we deal with that and then if we have time later we can touch upon life before um but You had your first child when you were 34, I believe, right? Yep, that's right. And that was really the first time that I ever had a consequence to my very normalized, socially acceptable drinking habit. Mm. Um, I woke up on a Sunday morning, as I did most Sunday mornings, six weeks after my baby was born. And, you know, the mundaneity and the stress of becoming a new mum, I mean, it was wonderful as well, of course. All those amazing bits come alongside that. But I'm not going to lie and say that I found it all hunky-dory. I didn't. I found it quite stressful and quite isolating. And and suddenly I'd gone from the only responsibility being whose round it was to being alone in an apartment with a life that I had to take care of. And, of course, the only way I dealt with any emotion, happiness, sadness, whatever, was to go out and get wasted. And I say go out because it never really morphed into a stay-at-home drinking habit. It was Mm. always kept social, which was almost to my disadvantage because it meant that obviously I pretended that I didn't have any sort of problem because well, everyone else is doing the same thing and no one's ever pointed out that I have a problem and everyone seems to be drinking like I drink. So it was sort of absorbed into the crowd for many, many years. But I woke up on a Sunday morning with a baby crying in the room beyond my hangover. And of course, that is a huge consequence. And I understood that I wasn't capable of looking after my child that day for the first time. Mm. Um And that filled me with guilt and shame and anxiety. I had experienced some anxiety in my early 20s from some recreational drug use. I was, of course, sort of a bit of a raver and had probably taken too many E's. And and that day, that Sunday, 
that I woke up, I kind of regressed into that 20 year old girl who was having anxiety again. And it was one place that I knew I never wanted to return to, but I could Mm. feel that anxiety returning because I wasn't capable of being there for this perfect life that I had created and chosen to be responsible for. Um, Yeah, that's how it started, I guess. Let's um, return back to this in a minute, but if we just rewind a little bit, I'm really curious what 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 is life like what what is life like what goes through your head how are you thinking when you find out that you're pregnant and then this this whole should we drink should we not drink how much can we drink how much can't we drink safety of the baby and then you know your husband or your partner or whatever if you are in that relationship obviously my my mom when she had me wasn't she was alone i don't know your your backstory in that case but I think you, 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 you know, you were, you had a partner and everything. <laughs> they don't have to give anything up. Like they, they, they can just carry on doing what they're doing. And we are, we are like, you know, well, you can't smoke, you can't drink, you got to eat this, you got to eat. What was that like going from party girl to holy shit? Like, what do I do now? Like, how was that, Victoria? Well, I talk about this transition a lot. I call it my kind of Pinot Gris purgatory when I got stuck in this place between a pub and an AA meeting where I wasn't quite sure whether I had an issue or not. But taking it back to like actually finding out I was pregnant, I was hungover after being on my hen's night um, in Australia and I'd fallen off a bed and got wedged between a cupboard like a doorstop. And my friends had to sort of drag me out in the morning and I was the right state. And I remember being sick that day and thinking, gosh, I'm being sick a bit more than usual. And, you know, I was ready to, to take the brunt of a massive hangover, but the hangover lasted a few days. And I was like, what's going on here? And I found out I was pregnant. I was in a good relationship for the first time in my life. We were engaged and we were about to get married in three months. And at that point, I just knew I had to give up drinking. I never really thought anything bad about it. I just thought, well, I'm pregnant. I give up drinking. It wasn't difficult to stop. It was just one of those things that I knew I would always do. Mm. And my husband drank on our honeymoon. I remember sitting in Bali watching him get pissed every night, which probably wasn't the most enjoyable thing. But I never questioned it. I just thought, well, you have a good time and I'll be back with you in nine months when I'm ready and I've had this baby. I never thought of withdrawing from my lifestyle because that was my kind of entire identity. So, yeah, I just kind of watched him uh, and while I had this little nine-month window of sobriety but just was kind of ticking off the days until I could sit in that hospital once the baby was out and have a glass of champagne to celebrate. So sobriety was never in my conscious. It wasn't in my radar. I never considered it, even though I did have these moments in my life where I didn't drink. And Mm. that kind of prolonged the problem almost because there was never a point where I thought, oh, I can stop. You remember, I stopped when I was pregnant. I stopped then and I stopped then. So it almost prolonged the agony because I felt like I could stop whenever I wanted. Let's just reflect on that a little bit because I think this is is a a really – interesting point for people to reflect on i'm not and and if they have the power and the capability to use it as a catalyst to change great it, it might not be but it's definitely worth reflecting on right um i know i'm talking really hypothetical here but let's just just let's just imagine that at that time i said to you let's try and not drink for nine months there's no baby there's nothing let's just try and not drink for nine months i'm gonna guess that you would have found that really really difficult I now, would not have done. 
Right. Yeah. And now, now we now we give you a baby. And look, you know, I know there'll be a lot of people listening to this who who would have drank some alcohol, maybe not even stopped during their pregnancy. And, you know, and you know, and this is a really difficult thing we're dealing with. So, you know, I'm, I'm not talking about this to shame anyone. I think it's a really, really important point. Then then you have a baby and actually societal norms dictate and make it's almost like there's a rule. Okay, we've got a baby, so like we're not supposed to drink or smoke or go take some cocaine or whatever because we have this baby inside our belly and we're responsible for it. And now we we don't we don't drink for nine months, but we we don't say to ourselves we're going to quit forever. We just say okay, we're not going to drink for nine months. Now, for people listening to this who are really 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 struggling to stop drinking, and uh, women and they did stop for those nine months. Now, I just just invite you to reflect on that and and the the difference between the so-called physical addiction to alcohol and the psychological and uh, addiction to alcohol. And it really, for me anyway, it, it it's like it's a good pointer to say, look, you know, this is a head game here. Like I know there's a lot of people out there that if they stop drinking, they'll die, et cetera, et cetera. But as I keep spouting off, they're not people who come to strive. I don't see yeah. those people, right? I see people who come to me pretty much like you were, Victoria, who say, I can't stop drinking, but you did and you can and you can do it again. I just Your reflections on that? Well, I think, as I said, I had never considered it because it was so much ingrained in me from a child that you drank to have fun. So all I thought was, well, I'm going to stop now and then I'll rejoin the party in nine months' time. It was almost impossible. I mean, I would never have self-reflected on my drinking because it was such a big part of my life. And I mm. think that's, of course, where I fell into that gray area, not understanding that I had a problem because I felt like I wasn't, first of all, deserving of professional support. And secondly, that I wasn't as extreme as someone that you're, like you're talking about. You know, I wasn't on a dialysis machine. I wasn't striving for my life and, you know, clinging on at the edge of a cliff, like everything was about to fall apart. I was very, very functional. I was a very normal, normalized binge drinker, like everybody else I knew. So it's, it is, it is an interesting place to be in that, in that sort of zone where everyone around you does the same thing. So why would you question? But of course, like everybody, I was questioning on Sundays when I was hung over lying in bed saying to myself, I'm never drinking again. But then of course I was waving a tenor at the barman by a Thursday afternoon going, mm. right, it's happy now, happy hour who's in. But that's more to do with that mental attachment that I had, that alcohol equals fun. I couldn't separate myself from it because I didn't want to. And I didn't know that that was a possibility. Mm, yeah, what comes up for me when you say that, Victoria, is um, the difference between mindset. It's like mindset shift, right? So it's like we're thinking, I don't have a problem with alcohol because because of the stereotype and the caricature of alcohol and alcoholism and alcohol addiction versus alcohol is a problem. So I'll just say yeah. that again. Like I don't have a problem with alcohol versus alcohol is a problem. And for me, once I shifted from thinking, I'd, do I or don't I have a problem with alcohol versus, hang on, is alcohol a problem? Like, is the fact yeah. that we drink a poison and it is legal um, and E, we talked about E, for example, and E is not legal? Like, what's going on there, right? And yeah. that was a shift for me. It was like, now I'm focusing on something very, very different. 
And also, I think further on, further down the line, after I'd stopped drinking, I understood this spectrum of alcoholism. I started to see, right, there isn't one thing that suits everybody. There isn't one type of help or one type of drinker. There is this huge spectrum of drinkers. And understanding that I sat somewhere on that spectrum was a revelation for me. I knew I wasn't at the end. I knew I wasn't at the beginning. But as you say, I knew alcohol was having impact, negative impact on my life. And I found a comfortable place to sit with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I I really hear you when you when you're going through this thought process of do I have a problem or not, and you look around and you see that everybody this is obviously a lot of people are just drinking the same or if not more than you, and there is no conversation of whether it's an issue or not. It really fucks with your mind a little bit, doesn't it? Because you because then who wants to be the person? I I get this with my with my parents. You know, like I, I was, I was having dinner with them yesterday, and uh, they were talking about some a friend of theirs who had to give up drinking because of liver disease. And then my mum made a, an extra point of really emphasising, yeah, but not everybody has a problem, and not everybody needs to stop. And and it was really, I mean, I don't know for sure, but it, I, I, I sensed it was aimed at me um, as a <laughs> as as a protection. You know, because when you go above the parapet and you're brave and vulnerable enough to say, like, I have a real problem. And 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 back then at the beginning, like, I don't do it now, but the only word was alcoholic. So so for me to say I'm an alcoholic at that time, I was basically saying, and so are you, 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 and you. Mm. And, and that didn't go down very well. So um, it's really difficult for you to, like, really open up and say, I've got a problem when you're surrounded by people who don't want to admit that they've got a problem. Yeah. It's like looking in the mirror. It's too, it's too, uh, too confronting for people. I mean, I have the same with my parents, like, you know, they're all right, but you had a problem. And it's, it's like, it's very confusing for people because they don't want to look at the fact that, you know, even just one glass is possibly a problem because it's a poison and you're pouring it into your body every day or once a week or whatever. And that's where the kind of the view of alcohol needs to change is like, oh, one or two is bad. But maybe we started looking at it more at the first stages saying like, like this one, this is what one will do. I don't know whether you listened to that amazing Huberman lab episode on alcohol, but like the impact that one glass of wine has a week on your anxiety and everything else. It was absolutely fascinating. So I do think they need to turn the the, the, you know, turn it around a little bit into being the impact of alcohol as a whole rather than pointing the finger and saying, you know, the line's drawn here and you've stepped over it. And that because that brings all that shame and all that, oh, well, I'm a bad person now because I've stepped over the line. You know, where is that line and how do we see that, you know, amongst friends when we're out? Why mm. is one person okay and the next person not? I think, we, as you say, we need to look at alcohol as the bigger picture and say, why is this available to everybody? Because actually it's causing damage no matter how much you drink. Yeah, I, I know this is like really controversial i guess i mean i don't drink i'm never gonna drink you know um but if i i i wouldn't take on i wouldn't take on the mantle of trying to remove alcohol from the world because it's just a losing battle right i mean yeah it's, it's never gonna happen um so so i'm kind of like okay what's the best what's the best of this and 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 I look at I look at my wife, right? <laughs> and it is it's not that I'm biased that she's my wife. But I look at my wife and uh, 
she she has a, a specific issue with her that means that she actually can't drink a lot of alcohol, right? And um, otherwise, it will impact her liver uh, detrimentally. Um, I rarely see her drink, you know, rarely. The other day, we was shopping, and we was in a health shop, bizarrely enough, buying some, like, organic, healthy foods. And, you know, like all mung health beans. shops these days, they have, yeah, mung beans. They have healthy alcohol. And, and she yeah. was just like, you know what? I feel like a pale ale. So she bought herself one can of pale ale and then at dinner later on, then she had dinner and she had her pale ale, right? Now, compare that to my dad yesterday. He was giving up smoking two weeks without a fag. I'm really, really happy that he's doing it. And I, and we were talking about how different it is to give up giving up smoking and him getting that support from his pub colleagues and him oh, yeah. giving up drinking, and then we'll, they will ridicule him if he tried to do that. And he said to me, yeah, giving up drink would be easy. I, I could give up drinking no problem. I could I could drop it easily. It's totally different to s- cigarettes. Now, if I think about my dad, never drinks at home, although he did in the pandemic, funny enough, um, never drinks in, in, in like 70-odd years at home other than the pandemic. He goes to the pub every Sunday, and he'll have six to ten pints. Now, if you compare Liza having one pale ale, yeah. and you right, and you then you pair my, my dad going to the pub just once a week and having ten pints. I, I like to say that the place that some people can actually drink it consciously, if you like, so they're not drinking it to um, because society is ingrained that they need to do it, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, and they're not drinking; they just or trauma want, or yeah, yeah. There's no trauma. There's no any child and then my dad's just locked in this um, unconscious pint after pint after pint after pint. And Huberman said, didn't he, the problem with alcohol is when you drink one, you're, you feel uncomfortable and then you need to have your second one. Yes. Yeah, and, William Porter says the same thing, yeah. Yeah, and, and I, I listened to that and I said, yeah, but, and I'd love to go on this podcast and talk to him about this, yeah, but I don't think, I don't think my dad's in the pub and he has a pint and then something in his head says, oh, my God, I'm feeling really anxious now. I need to go and have another pint. No, no, no. My dad's in the pub from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock before he goes home for his Sunday dinner. And his job is to drink as much as he can before he goes. It, it yeah. is not anything in his brain saying, oh, my God, you're feeling really nervous. You need to have another pint. That is not what is really happening in the world in, mm. in terms of addiction. You know what I mean? It's yeah. we we go out, we go into a round of six people. And we will drink six or 12 pints because that is the mathematics of drinking in rounds, right? Yeah. Habitual. Yes. And I think, I think Huberman, the podcast was amazing. The best one I've ever listened to, but there was so much missing from it, you know, so much missing from it. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. That is so true. I mean, I think it's not a conscious choice a lot of the time. Like perhaps that is happening inside of the body. That anxiety is rising because the the alcohol is in there. But as I agree with you, and when you say that perhaps there isn't a mental decision happening that goes, oh, oh yes, you know, because I know my dad wouldn't get nervous after his first pint and probably just feel like, oh, that was nice. I want another one. There's nothing yeah. more going on. <laughs> no, even even if you even if you took that to like we both in our community have people who are trying to stop drinking, and what will happen is it's it's a Friday night. And they've woken up and they're already anxious, right? They're already anxious or worried it's Friday. This is the night I usually capitulate. 
They, then they open a bottle. Let's say their thing is Bacardi. They open a bottle of Bacardi. They have a Bacardi Coke and they drink it. Now, in that moment, they're a little bit mindful because they're trying not to drink. They succumb. They have that first drink. I can see how then the whole anxiety and the uncomfortableness and the alcohol, I can see how that kicks in. But even in that yeah. situation, in my experience, when someone succumbs, let's say they've gone 20 days without having a drink, the day counts irrelevant, and they succumb on day 21, yeah, they're just going to drink and get smashed that day. Very few people are drinking mindfully and then tipping it away. They're just going to drink, they're going to get drunk, and the next day if they've got a support community, they can come on board and say, like, you know, yesterday I, I drank, and then they can get that support. I don't think yeah. this. I don't think the science is kicking in there. And I was screaming at Huberman's podcast. I'm like, no, <laughs> Every, very few people listening to this, as good as it is, are going to stop drinking. And that is the yeah, no, that is the that. issue. That is the yeah, issue that, that that needs to be addressed. Yeah, you know? yeah definitely. Yeah. yeah, it's fascinating. All of it's fascinating. I mean, every every aspect of this drug is is quite enthralling to me just because I did it for so many years and I you know I often feel quite tricked by it and quite yeah. I often feel quite silly you know that I did this for so many years and I was so indoctrinated into this bloody booze cult that mm-hmm. yeah I just look back and I listen to podcasts like that I just look back and go god you know what was I doing like I think a lot of it has to do with trying to sort of educate yourself about every aspect of it. And it, it can be a bit of a head fuck for everybody who gets sober mm. because suddenly you're like switched on and you want to learn so much and you read so many books and you listen to all these podcasts and stuff. But a lot of it can be quite overwhelming if you listen to too much. I've definitely overdone it, I think. Yeah, <laughs> Addicted yeah. to your sobriety podcast instead of alcohol now. <laughs> yeah. I was uh, I was playing around with the, have you heard of the, like the chat GPT and the, open ai on the internet have you heard about oh, that i can't even i can't even mentally take myself there but yeah i've i've had a look at it because somebody said you can just go write me a podcast about alcohol turn it in chinese and then write it backwards and it just does it all for you so yeah, yeah we'll, we'll be out of a job pretty soon i reckon <laughs> i mean it, it's pretty cool you know but it's not it's not like it's not like everything we've still got a job for a little bit but i i type I, 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 I typed in there um what is the most effective uh, 12-step program for alcohol recovery? Um, and number one was um, grow the awareness of um, the physical, um, you know, basically grow the awareness of what alcohol does to you what, and how it fucks you up, right? Um, and I'm like, no, nah, even ChatGPT's got it. Even ChatGPT's got it wrong because, um, look, Human beings know they know it's fucking them up, right? Like they know it. And even if they're not like super consciously aware of it, they know it. And actually, even if you put that information in front of them, in, in front of their faces, a very, very small percentage of people will stop drinking. Now, put a baby in your belly. Now, that percentage of people who stop drinking suddenly zooms right up. And that is yeah. a type of that is a type of question that um you know, we're talking about today and someone like Huberman, what, what is the motivation? It's, it's a motivation issue, right? A lot of the times, right? Um, yeah. Anyway, so you have, you have your first and then that nine months is going, coming down. You start drinking straight away when the baby comes out, what happens? 
well, I just found it all a bit boring and I met a mother's group and like I wanted to go out because I just wanted to kind of find, I think that for me, it was like I wanted to go back and find a piece of the old me because I felt like I'd become boring. I found that motherhood made me boring. You know, I loved that child more than anything in the whole world, but I found like part of me was being sucked away into this new new me, this new person who wore kind of like mum shorts and hung out the washing and did all these things that I wasn't normally doing. You know, I'd been traveling for 10 years on my own and had gone from being this nomad to being stuck in an apartment with beige walls, thinking about, you know, how many loads of washing I had to do. So it was a huge transition for me and it wasn't easy. And the only way I knew how to deal with that was to go out and wash it all away. Mm. And so that's what I did. And six weeks after the, my son was born, I went out and I had this terrible hangover filled with guilt and shame. But at that point, I never, ever thought, well, maybe I should stop drinking. It wasn't at all something I wanted to do. And so for four years, I continued to drink. And that's where I got really stuck and really overlooked, actually, because I I was a successful mom. You would have seen my Facebook page. It was all, you know, Australian beaches with perfect wraps and rolling waves. And, you know, I was a good mum. I, I was never drunk in front of my child or anything like that. I think actually that's a point, you know, I think often people want to hear a dramatic story from me, like mm. mother with vomits on baby and imagines me lying on the floor covered in a pile of puke and a baby crawling over me all alone or something like that. That is not what happened. I mm. think some of these stories are very, very normal and we want to dramatize them and make them more than they are because that makes it extreme them and that, and that fits me in that box perfectly. But that's not what I talk about. I talk about in between those places and and a place where I got very, very stuck because I wasn't an extreme drinker. So I would go out, the mundaneity would build up in the weeks between me drinking and not drinking. So after I would be hungover, I'd probably be good for a week and I'd, you know, be a great mom and I'd be perfect for that week. And then it would sort of build up for me. Like I deserve this. I need a reward. I've been a good mom. And the only way I knew how to reward myself with, was with, or with any emotion was to sort of numb it out with alcohol or, or sort of top it up with a, with an extra round of horrible Sambuca shots or something horrible like that. Mm -hmm. But I, it just continued for four years. And each weekend, my anxiety got worse and worse and worse because with each hangover, I felt more guilty. And I was trying to numb it out earlier on in the week then because my guilt would sort of, you know, leak over into the beginning of the week. So I'd have anxiety Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. By Thursday, I'd had enough of it. And then I'd be out again. So it was probably going out once a week and dealing with a massive hangover once a week. And my husband, you know, he's the only one that saw me crippled with anxiety. I still had the happy face on Facebook, but he was there looking at me like, what is wrong with you? This isn't just a hangover. You, you're sitting in bed with your finger on your pulse telling me you think you're going to die. Like, what is going on with you here? He never told me to stop, but he could see that my alcohol intake was making my mental health wobble every Sunday morning. But I put on a brave face throughout it because I couldn't see another option. All I wanted to do was learn how to drink better. And I used to go out on nights, like I'd start off go, right, I'm just going to have one. I'm going to learn how to moderate. I'm going to have 
you know, water between wines, have fish and chips before I go out to line my stomach. I did all the tricks, but I always drank more than everybody else, I realise now, and I was always more hungover than everybody else. I remember yeah. looking back at my friends while I was stumbling around in a pub or something, and everyone would kind of be propped up with a glass of wine, having their few sips, looking all prim and proper, and I'd be sort of stumbling around a dance floor somewhere. So there were signs there and there was loads of red flags throughout my life saying that you drink more than everybody else and everybody else seems to be all right and you're completely off your trolley. But I was never, ever capable of heeding the signs. But the anxiety got worse and worse and worse. And the only way I knew how to deal with it was to get pregnant again. And that's what I did. And so that I gave myself another nine months to stop this anxiety monster from infiltrating my life. And yeah, I got pregnant again, had another nine months of sobriety, which was, I know it sounds weird to get pregnant to stop anxiety, but I did want another child and it was kind of the perfect answer. It meant I didn't have to stop drinking, but I could get rid of the anxiety. Becoming ambivalent around our alcohol use is confusing, uncomfortable, and downright terrifying. Alcohol is so embedded in our lives that we can't imagine our life without it. And at Strive, we get that. So why not take one step at a time, starting with diving deep into our book, The Strive Method, Control Alcohol for 30 Days Before It Controls You for the Next 30 Years. Head over to www.thestrivemethod.com to purchase and receive a Santa sack full of freebies today. Talk about that anxiety a little bit more. Um, what was it about? What was surfacing? I don't know if you've ever done any work on it per se, but what 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 and how alcohol was involved in it? Well, I had cognitive behavioural therapy in my early twenties when I had, which I realise now was probably alcohol related as well, because my my recreational drug use when I was living in Brighton in my early twenties got out of control and made me quite mentally unwell. Um, and anxiety really ripped into me then. I used to have massive panic attacks um, and I actually had to move home for a year and live back in Reading where I'm from and, you know, stop drinking, stop smoking, stop everything for a year. And I was really unwell. And I've always had a fear of returning to that again because I felt like I wouldn't survive it twice. Mm. It was really traumatic for me and traumatic for everyone that saw me because I, from one minute I was a party girl to the next day, there was no one there. And, you know, I moved, I moved away from all my friends and I just knew that I couldn't go through that again. And that's the feeling that reappeared later on in my life after having kids. And I felt like if this was coming back and then I developed a fear of it, of course, and then the circle of anxiety begins. Hmm. So I had a fear of getting anxious. I would get anxious then I'd feel a bit better and then I'd have a fear of getting anxious again. And it just went round and round and round. And when alcohol came into, you know, onto the scene after having children it was just a kind of throwing fuel on the fire my mental equilibrium from that point in my 20s was already a bit askew so therefore I think anything could have tipped me over the edge but I didn't I wasn't willing to look at it as an issue because then I meant I had to stop it and I didn't want to stop it Hmm. so yeah my anxiety was probably always caused by alcohol but I was never ever willing to to look at that And the way it made me feel was like I was going to die on a minute-to-minute basis. And it sounds extreme, and there is drama there, but the drama, unfortunately, was only inside my head. 
And it's very, very difficult to talk about that sort of anxiety because, you know, I'd have rather had a jippy knee or a cut on my mm. forehead saying, look, here's my wound. Can you fix it? But of course, I didn't have those things. It was all inside me and I always felt like a bit of a knob for talking about it because I was like, I sound mental. I don't want people to think I'm mental, but I am. And this is what's going on inside my head and I need to get some help. Um, so I did get help in those early stages, but after my second child was born, I did go out and get drunk again, six weeks after she was born, even though I'd made loads of promises to do better and get rid of this anxiety and stop this behavior and moderate and all of these unreachable goals. And that anxiety monster was sitting at the end of my bed the next morning, exactly as it had been with my last child. And I knew that day that that was one step too far and that I could not and I would not survive this anxiety if I carried on. And that's the mm. day I decided to seek support for a possible problem with alcohol. Mm. Well, thank you for that, uh, sharing that. I really appreciate it because uh, I know it's not easy retelling these things. Um, so what I hear there is we have um, – some mental health issues and, and and anxiety is a big part of that when we're in our twenties. And then as we get older, um, we're worried that that is going to resurface. Mm -hmm. And one way of dealing with that is to actually drink alcohol, which at the same time is creating more anxiety. Um, one of the, is is was was you also aware at that time then that even though the alcohol is creating more anxiety, one of the things that it's really doing is it's actually preventing you from actually even looking at why I'm anxious mm. to deal with that to someone's like um, the root cause in it. Like the drinking stops you from going to the root cause because it creates so much drama and chaos. We spend mm. so much time looking at the alcohol issue that we don't look at the, oh, maybe I need to go see a therapist or a coach and work on what happened to me in my 20s. Were you yeah. aware of that? No, I wasn't aware of it until that morning, until that, mm. until the second, you know, after my second, my daughter was born, I was never aware of any of that. You know, some things happened in my past that I'd never really considered. I thought, well, you know, everyone has trauma, everyone has things, you know, I was never locked in a cupboard like Harry Potter or anything like that. So I was like, oh, well, I've had quite a lovely life. So therefore I don't have the right to have a problem almost. Yeah. So therefore I felt like, you know, when I did eventually go and see a therapist, I'm remember phoning her up and saying, oh, I'm just a mum who's got a little bit of a binge drinking problem. I was embarrassed that my problem wasn't bad enough. I thought she was just going to say, oh, you know, don't bother. You don't need this. You don't need therapy because, you know, you, you've had a nice childhood. But actually, that's not what she said at all. She said, see you on Monday. And that's, you know, that's how I started therapy. But like, mm. I think there's a, a disillusion that you have to be get really bad to get good. And with trauma and with all of those things, that it has to be a certain way before you're deserving of healing, which of course is not the case, which I've discovered in hindsight. But it is a wonderful thing to learn about yourself. And I found it quite self-indulgent. I don't know. I like being a bit more humble about things and, and to go and see a therapist to me felt like oh god you know a bit a bit too over the top but I kept mm. it secret and that made it a lot easier for me yeah I can I can see that I mean when when I when we I'm 48 and so when I grew up I grew up in the UK we if if you were bullying someone in the playground you would call them mental like that's one of the words that you would use mental <clears throat> spaz horrible, horrible words that were all connected to a physical or mental impairment. Mm. 
So why on earth then, as you get a little bit older, would you ever, ever say, I have mental health issues? I mean, today it seems a little bit more normal uh, and acceptable. You know, I hear my 22-year-old son talk about it. My daughter this morning, she's six and she's, I was doing my morning pages and I'm like, you do your morning pages. And she's drawing like, she drew like, she said, I feel like a cat locked in a box and she's drawing all these things. Like that didn't happen when I was a kid. Do you know what I mean? Um, it was kind so, of like it was talking over the fence. I like, talked about this recently. Like it was kind of like nudging over at the neighbor saying, Oh, you know, Linda at number 46 had a mental breakdown. It was like, Oh, yeah, Linda. But you didn't go around and see Linda or ask if she was all right. You just went, Oh, she's gone mad. She's yeah. had a mental breakdown. She's lost it. And it would all kind of be people peeking through the curtains going, Oh, yeah, she's mad. She's mad. And of course, I think now that's, cha- I think that has changed, luckily. But there was a sentiment of that within me of like, oh, maybe I am mad and maybe I just shouldn't tell anyone about it because I was kind of embarrassed that I'd gone mad and couldn't admit it. But mm-hmm. in the end, none of it, none of it mattered. None of it mattered. All that mattered was me, my husband and my kids. And I had to do it for them and for our family unit. And I think that's when I really decided to change was when I understood that the opinions of, of others didn't matter to me anymore. Is that is that because you worked on um, improving a healthier opinion of yourself? Well, I think what I worked out was after, you know, many hours in a small room with a lovely lady to guide me, I worked out that all my life I had been a massive people pleaser. Mm. And I, you know, my parents were huge partiers and all I'd wanted to do was to join in this massive party. And then there was an incident at um, school when when I was 15 where my two best mates decided while I'd been on holiday that they didn't want to be friends with me anymore. It sounds minor, but for me it was utterly life-changing. It was heartbreaking. And from that day on, not only did I want to make friends, but I wanted to keep them. And the only way I knew how to do that was to entertain them, be the funniest person in the room and the one with the line of coke, the drugs, the, you know, the bottle of booze and no VIP passes to the big beat boutique or whatever. So I created this persona for myself because I was a massive people pleaser and it was coming from, you know, from a good place. It was my heart saying, you know, I loved my friends and I want to be your friend and I want you to stay with me. And it was quite sad really discovering that about myself, but it was also enlightening because it meant that I could heal that situation and move on from it. And that's what I learned to do in therapy was, you know, it is that inner child stuff going back to who I was and saying, it's okay. This wasn't your fault. And you can re, you know, rebuild your life in a way that you want to do it. And and that's what I did. That's exactly what I did. I went into therapy thinking like, I've got a little bit of a drink problem, perhaps, and coming out going, I've definitely got a bit of a drink problem. And I realized that I could change and evolve and, and take the parts about me that I, that weren't working for me and take them out and, and find some new ones that would. And it's, you know, a lot goes on in those in those therapy sessions. But I think it was just about finding my self-worth and understanding that the opinions of others were irrelevant and all that mattered was that I was finding my own path and my own happiness. Mm. All very cheesy, but there you no, go. It's beautiful. <laughs> and and I, I would even go one layer deeper than that and say that you actually, I mean, this is the first time I've, I've thought about this, actually, is, is that you actually uh, said it in this way, but it's actually you find out that you 
don't have a drink problem, but you find that you have problems, yeah. quote unquote, in the way you think, the way you feel, the way you interact with the world. And then you realize that in order to deal with those problems, you've been using alcohol to run away from them. And I think reframing it like that can really help people, but also terrify them because they, if you take away that alcohol, then all of a sudden there's nothing to, it's almost like the alcohol is the security system that prevents the shadows from taking over your mind, right? Um, yeah. And we have no idea how incredibly powerful we are and how capable we are of dealing with that until until someone puts you on a desert island where there is no alcohol with your brain and you just have to fucking deal with it and you realize, oh, shit, I actually can do this. Or in, in the case of putting a baby in your belly yeah. and yeah. Like, you deal with it. And also I don't think often, I don't think sometimes realize, people realize that sort of, trauma is relative and that you're allowed to feel sad about that situation. Mm. There were many other situations in my life that I'd glazed over and just gone, oh, well, that happened, shit happens, that happened to me, but that's okay. But actually, when I really dug into it, I thought, well, actually, I that isn't okay. And that actually wasn't my fault. And why did that happen? And, and to really break down those situations from my past which enabled me to move on from them. And that was really interesting to me that you could heal things. I just thought, oh, we're just going to be going over loads of old stuff and it's not going to help anyone. What's the point? Mm. And you know, I didn't want to go back after that second session when we said we're going to dig into that, you know, dig into your past, Victoria. I was like, oh, no, nothing's really happened. Like, it's just I'm a big drinker and it's just who I am. Mm. But actually... Those, all of those minor points, all of those red flags that were kind of, you know, piling up throughout my life all led to me being a drinker and to me numbing certain things out and me using alcohol as a solution to my problems. And it took therapy to, to really, you know, thread that together and then understand what I could do with it and what was left over. Yeah. Oh, man. You know, this is super powerful stuff, everyone listening. Yeah. I just want to just accentuate this. You know, as a coach who helps loads of people deal with this, I'll give you an example. An example I see so many times in my clients, right? Um, I'll get a beautiful woman. She'll come and work with me. And I'll say to her, what What was your, uh, or they'll start talking and sharing their story. And they'll say something that could be perceived as potentially derogative towards their parents. And they'll put the brakes on and they'll say, Oh, but but my mom and dad uh, were were really amazing. Like they 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 were great parents. You know, I don't want to say that they 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 weren't. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I hear you, I hear you. And then a little bit later on, we'll be doing some work going in in the child, and the woman, for example, will say, um, yeah. And there's this, I, like, you could be like, um, I feel unloved. Okay, when was the first time you ever felt unloved? Oh, okay, and they'll yeah. go into it, and it'll just be something as simple as. I and this happened this morning with my daughter, for example, right? Uh, it'll be simple as simple as um I I run into the front room and I saw my dad and I asked him to play with me and he said no. Mm. And in that moment, I just felt utterly and utterly worthless because he says no quite a lot. Mm. And that could be it. And it's like just allowing that person in that moment to connect with that that six-year-old who desperately, desperately, desperately wanted love and attention from his father, but couldn't get it for whatever reason. Mm. And then that then turned itself into, 
I I have a, this personality trait where the the approval of other people becomes really important to me. And if I don't get it, I'm going to feel really anxious. And then I'm going to drink to deal with that anxiety. And because yeah. it wasn't rape, murder, terrorism, or yes, whatever, yeah. you you're not allowed to to go through that experience. Yeah, you are. You know yeah. that, that and you can learn from it. Yeah, learn so from much. those experiences. Yeah. yeah, so much. I think it's. I, I it's funny you say that because I do find myself doing that. Like, especially with my parents, I say, yeah, they were good parents, but 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 but. And I found after a while, especially, I think I, yeah, I would never have discovered this, but I found myself blaming a lot of situations that I was involved in. I was saying, oh, yeah, it was those friends at school and that I grew up in this family and, and this environment and this culture and normalised binge drinking and, you know, the government and all of these other things. And I had all these things floating around me that I could blame, but none of them were going to solve my problem at the end of the day. Yeah. And it was only when I turned it around and pointed the finger straight back at me that I went, well, the only person that's going to deal with this is me and blaming people and things and situations is actually not going to solve anything. And it's just going to lead me down a track where people I love are going to get wounded and it's going to hurt the hearts of, of, of all sorts of people in my life, which I never wanted to do. And when I turned it around and I looked at myself and I understood my own behaviors a bit more. I understood that it was always my hand filling up the glass. Mm -hmm. It was my hand reaching into the fridge for a cold bottle of wine for whatever reason. It was me waving that tenor at the barman. It was me, you know, sitting on a pile of mud at a festival ordering another pill. You know, it was yeah, always yeah. me. It was my behavior. And the only way I knew, I'm not saying blame. I didn't blame myself. I could see how these things had had made me who I was. Mm. But that I was never going to change it by keeping that in the forefront of my mind. The only way I was going to change was to say, well, I am the intrinsical thing here. It is me that's making this choice to drink. And that, that day that I'd discovered that mentally where I took responsibility for my problem was the day that I stopped drinking and never drank ever again, because I knew it was me. I was the, I was the thread that was sewing all of this together. And, and, and I could have gone, you know, blaming everyone until the cows came home, but I knew after a while that that was not going to solve anything. Yeah. And you, and like you say, you're, you're, you're British, right? So complaining, complaining about everything is, is in our DNA. Um, yeah. Winching Poms. And then now I like that. What, what I'm hearing there is like a real fundamental first principle of strive actually is, you know, you gotta, you gotta learn to take 100% responsibility for the way you respond to the circumstances yes. and, and yes. things that happen in your life. And when you do that, it's super powerful because, you know, you know, you said earlier on about the alcohol spectrum, right? So at one end, you've got the caricature of the the alcoholic pissing his pants on the street corner. And then you've got um, Liza who drinks one pale ale in a blue moon. And then and then understanding that it, we don't we don't need to look at that in a polarized way. We actually sometimes we're up here more and sometimes we're down there uh, yeah. a, a little bit more. Um that that oh i lost my train of thought what was we talking about um about comparing a normal drinker to on the spectrum ah i forgot it totally lost i totally lost it i totally lost i never had anything i'm too lazy oh that was it I'm that sure was, it was it. something I got very it. interesting no. as well. <laughs> 
you just you just nailed it actually by saying that I would edit it. You know, because uh, it. Okay, so I wouldn't. I won't edit that because now I don't. I don't care. Yes, yeah. That I <laughs> what, did what it. the people listening think. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, so that that's what I was trying to get at is. Um, is un- when you and un- when you take one hundred percent responsibility for the yes. way you respond and you grow that heightened self awareness, you actually have greater empathy and compassion with your parents and other people who you quote who quote yes. unquote wronged you because you see your own wabi sabiness, you see your own perfectly imperfectness, and then you're like, oh wow, man. Well, actually, if I'm like this, then seven point eight billion people in the world are like this, and then you can shift into a different energy, and that allows you then to go, okay, so. My dad's a dick. He's never loved me ever. He never played with me ever. He never showed me any attention whatsoever. Um, but he did keep me safe. Right? Yeah. Like, and and I I don't have to blame him. I can I could actually I could actually show him love. Yeah, he doesn't yeah, kiss me, lovely. but but I'll kiss him and that's see lovely. what happens. Yeah. 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 That's very nice way of mm. thinking about things. Mm. Yeah. So what was um what was recovery like as a parent? Well, I mean, it was amazing. As amazing as you know, just being able to function again, like from being in a world of turmoil, <laughs> thinking that I was always going to have this huge anxiety monster banging my door down every weekend, to just feeling a sense of freedom and you know that weight I felt like that was lifted off my shoulders. All those years of anxiety of feeling like I had to drink even though I wasn't enjoying it anymore. It was like a boulder being lifted off my chest. I think there's some epiphanies that can happen in sobriety where you just go, oh my God, I just don't need to do this anymore. This is amazing. And I felt like that very early on, but I kept my sobriety quiet. I kept it a secret for 18 months because Mm. it felt so private, everything that I was going through. And I knew as you, as we were saying, like nothing else mattered apart from my husband and my kids at that point. So I didn't tell anyone. And also I felt like the only person in the whole world that had ever given up a socially acceptable binge drinking habit. I just thought people would just carry on and and I'm the only person that's ever done this. So I actually started writing a diary on the day that I gave up drinking. And also my brain had started working. It had been really kind mm. of spongy there and saturated in toxins for so long that that was the really amazing thing about being a parent and actually being really functional mentally. I've missed out on so much learning, I realize, and learning just to be myself and to be a good mom, but also academically, like I didn't know that I had a brain for such a long Mm -hmm. time. And that has been a real that's been really uh, a lovely experience to sort of learn again and and be capable of like absorbing information because mm-hmm. I don't think I've been capable of that for such a long time. But in terms of being a mum, I think just being present, I'm not perfect. I still shout at them sometimes. I fuck up all the time, but I'm present and I'm available to witness my successes and my failures now, whereas mm. before I kind of wasn't really you know, I wasn't really self-aware. I wasn't self-conscious of anything that I was doing, but now I look at my mistakes and I understand where I'm going wrong. And I might reach out for help from someone or a therapist and say, I'm doing bad parenting today. I'm, and you know, I, I'm capable of reaching out for support in most situations now because I know how much I benefited from that sort of, you know, that sort of help. So 
I'm I'm not an amazing parent. I'm a very normal parent who struggles a lot sometimes still. And I do find it mundane sometimes. And I've got another child. I had a third child in sobriety. And, you know, having mm. three kids, I'm 46. I do sometimes feel like marching out the front gate and never coming back. But I don't do it because I'm capable of processing my emotions now rather than numbing them out. Yeah, there was, uh, I was listening to the Sam Harris podcast. He interviewed... Um, can't remember who it was now, but it was a Harvard uh, guy, and they just finished the longest ever study on happiness. Yeah. And one of the biggest things that came up was your your relationships. And the study showed that um, happiness levels dramatically decrease when you have children. Mm-hmm. They increase when your children leave, and they decrease right. when they come back. Makes that makes a lot of sense. I think I'm on the decrease at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's worth it's worth the reason I say that is because a lot of for me anyway, I view alcohol dependency or the biggest wider issue. Like I, I term alcoholism very differently than the scientific literature, right? I I think we're all uh, we're all caught in the in the web of this invisible violent and dominant belief system and i call it alcoholism right like that we're born to drink alcohol from we're we're designed to drink alcohol from the moment that we are born everything in our culture um sends us down that river and this where we've got no control right like it it's 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 really really difficult um and that that's like that's the toughest thing. Do you know what I mean? It's like when you, when you're a parent and you're really struggling with this thing. Oh no, sorry. What I was going to say was part of this whole thing is that we are, we're, we're made wrong if we don't like our children or we don't like certain aspects of parenthood. It's it's made wrong. And actually, one of the biggest revelations for me in my own mental health was coming to terms with the fact that I would rather work than play with my kids. And that doesn't mean that I'm a bad father. And and realizing that I do get anxious and feel anxiety when my children want my attention, because there's a little inner child part of me that never had that and rebels against the fact that they're getting it. And it's like, no. I want my own time and, and, and recreating um, a different narrative for parenting to allow us to go, yeah, yeah, I'm going to have a kid and it's going to be really fucking tough and it's going to be yeah. really difficult. And actually yeah. um, here's one for me. And because this is, this is important as well. When you stop drinking, it's, it doesn't, it's not just your children, it's your relationship with your husband or your relationship with your wife. Me and Liza recently talking about having another kid. And I said, the biggest thing I'm worried about if we have another kid is I'll lose you again. Mm, because because yeah. you because you you pour all your love and attention into Zia, our daughter, and I don't I don't get it to see any of that. And you don't yeah. need me, you don't need me in that way anymore because our daughter fulfills so much of your needs. If we had a second child, I'm worried that I would lose my wife more. Mm-hmm. That that is a part of the whole thing. Your relationship with your husband and your wife while you're trying to have kids, and the drinking thing is a part of that as well, right? 
I think there needs to be so much more awareness around this. I mean, you know, awareness around the transition as well from, mm. from party girl to mum. You know, all of this is, is it happens all the time. It happens every day. Women go from being one thing to being something completely different in, in, a, mm. in a very small moment in time. And it is very overwhelming for everybody involved. You know, you go from being quite sexual as well to then yeah. not really wanting your partner to go near you because you've given everything to the baby. And that mm. for women, it's a very different experience having a child than it is for a male. And I think that does come into play. I do think women start probably numbing that out into, into parenthood and, and all of those feelings going on all the time it's a lot isn't it like all of, and you don't want to say anything because they're having a hard time because they're feeding and they're up and night and everybody's tired like I think in the first place there just needs to be more awareness and yeah. discussion about this transition whether you're a drinker or not from being whoever you were before to then being a parent it's a fascinating <laughs> topic for sure <laughs> did you ever do the postnatal classes before you I mean I don't know what they call them so you go, you're pregnant and you take your husband and you go for classes. Yeah. Antenatal, that's it. Yeah, and they're yeah. like, okay, so this is this is how you breathe. This is how you and I'm thinking, where's the bit where they're like, okay, so um you you let your husband suck your boob, but then when the baby sucks it for so long, you're never ever gonna let your husband do that ever again. So that's a part <laughs> of it. Um, you're never gonna want him to touch down there yeah. because the baby come out of it. Like, yeah. where's all that teaching? We need to we need to create our own um antenatal classes, get them up to there's scratch. That famous, there's that famous comedian who went to the antenatal, I can't remember his name. He went to the antenatal clinic and put his hand up and said, you know, does the does the husband go down and watch the other end? And a guy the the lady says, No, my husband said it was like his favorite pub had burnt down, but he still wanted to go in for a pint. <laughs> <laughs> I, like I think that's that a one. good description of yeah, that situation. Like that. But yeah, I just oh. think more honesty basically is is should be available to people. It might scare people from having children now, and then that would but it's probably the world's a bit overpopulated anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say, yeah, my 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 mum said to my son yesterday over Sunday dinner, he, he said, I don't want kids, and she said, Don't don't have them, it's terrible. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, okay. Um, so yeah, I, sort just, of, I know where she's coming from. Yeah. Um, just so before I let you go, uh, tell us a little bit about the work you're doing with the Cuppa community and, and all that and uh, and let people know what you're doing and why does she join you? Yeah, so since giving up drinking, as I said, I started writing on the day I gave up. I'm kind of a comedy writer. I've sort of developed since I gave up drinking. I've always enjoyed writing and I always enjoyed making people laugh. So my book is being published next year. It's called A Thousand Wasted Sundays. That'll be out in March 2024, which is super exciting. I can't wait for that. Um, I have a free online sobriety community, which is called Cuppa, cuppa.community, and you can find anything on there. People kept asking me, "What? how do I get sober? How do I get sober? And I never had an answer. But now I just say, go to Cuppa. It's all on there, everything you need, people, events, whatever you want. It's all for free. Um, and I host the Sober Awkward podcast, which is a comedy podcast about being socially awkward now that you've given up drinking and going over it in detail about each event and, and what it's like being the person, you know, being the punk that's swimming up river like that salmon against the grain and no longer being the sheep which can mm. cause all sorts of side effects uh, like anxiety and shyness and, you know, being sober can be hard in, in, in the social life, in a social aspect, but it's 
promise you it'll be the best thing you ever do for anyone that's listening it is hard that's kind of what makes it so good i think <laughs> yeah i i agree i agree it's uh it for me i i look at it as the the catalyst to incredible change if you want to if you want to do it it's a really good springboard to like much much greater much greater yeah. things but don't don't just rely on it there's a, there's other shit that you have to don't do don't rely with, on it you know? no yeah, but it yeah. does help with generally everything i would say yeah. i must recommend um i'm reading matthew perry's book at the moment um it's really interesting actually but his levels mm. of addiction and how how he came out the other side many times but but i often get a lot of emails from people who how you know they they struggle with staying sober. And I think that's a huge issue. But mm. And people want to be sober, but they can't. And then they really beat themselves up and they get in this pattern of, of feeling shame and that they can't do something they want to do. But I think all of these, these experiences will lead eventually to a long-term sobriety and learning to live on this more content line rather than this zigzag of highs and lows and highs and lows. I think that is the thing about sobriety is that you have to, you enjoy the simple things a lot more, but that does mean you live on this sort of plane of, of normality, which, which some people might find scary, but it is a nice place to be. And you, you do get into your Sudoku and your Wordle and your <laughs> Scrabble and all those <laughs> things. Scrabble, yeah. be, embrace the boring is my message always. <laughs> I like it. Well, Victoria, thank you. I really appreciate your time here today talking about a really important subject and uh, thanks for all the work you're doing and I'll catch you on the other side. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Just a few thank yous. First of all, I want to thank uh, you guys and girls for listening to this podcast and being supporters of it. Many people stop drinking alcohol just by listening to this podcast. I got a lot of people reaching out to me, thanking me for that, right? So give this to somebody as a gift today or rate and review the podcast. If you can rate and review the podcast on your local podcast player and tell somebody about it, you could change somebody's life today, okay? So thank you for listening and thank you in advice in advance for that piece of service. Also want to thank our producer, Stan. Um, Stan is still currently in the Ukraine, fighting the war and producing our podcast while his family is somewhere else in the world right now, okay, apart from him. So everybody, send out your prayers and your love. Stan, we love you. Thank you very much for everything you do here. For you out there, if you are starting to think about, contemplate, uh, reflect on your relationship with alcohol, you do not have to do this alone. Yes, you drink alone, but you don't have to stop alone, okay? And if alcohol is not your thing, but you are starting to feel that you actually are living a parts-led life. The ego is getting in the way too much. So you're not happy with the way life is going. Then reach out to us at thestrivemethod at gmail.com. Just say, Lee, and just tell me what is on your mind. And we'll start to have that conversation. Strive community is a beautiful place where you can start to feel seen, heard, and matter. It's where you can get community. And it's where you can start practicing what we call the eight C's of self, our core values, right? Of creativity, curiosity, uh, connection, compassion, courage. Uh, I can't remember the rest of them, but there's eight of them, right? And we have our quest structure. So we have assignments and they're really interesting, exciting. At the end of them, we say to you, come on, do this quest, right? Get involved in this challenge. Um, and Strivers are really finding it exciting and they're working their challenges in these areas that are going to increase the amount of time they spend in self-energy in a state of flow. And that is has amazing repercussions for the relationship you grow with yourself and for how you 
how you reach out to others in their life, like how you parent, how you um, are as a child to your, not child, but a son or a daughter, how you are in your relationship with the person you share your bed with and how you behave with your employees, right? So reach out to me at strivemethod at gmail.com if you want to learn more. Okay, much love, everybody.